Greetings, I'm Brad Thomas, and this is After All is Said and Done. Welcome. After all is said and done, then we will know, won't we? But perhaps we can know now, if we choose to. In the previous program, I mentioned the case of Richard Black Jr., and yet I think that I may have failed to mention his name. And if so, I apologize. I was remiss in doing so if I did fail to mention his name. He is the decorated Vietnam War veteran, 73 years young, who shot and killed a man who had broken into Richard's home and was attempting to rape his 11-year-old grandson. The man was naked, and Richard fought with him and tried to tear him away from his grandson, and he was unable to do so, so he got his 9 millimeter handgun and shot the attacker to death. Then the police arrived, and of course they would leap to the conclusion that Richard is a bad guy here, so they shoot him to death. Outstanding. And as I mentioned, this incredible situation that we have in the United States of America (laughs) with regard to law enforcement is just breathtaking. There are so very, very, very many cases, so very many incidents where monstrous murderers, instead of being shot, are arrested, even while they are in the act of attempting to murder, even when they have murdered people, viciously, ruthlessly murdered people, immediately prior to the police stopping them, and they are still engaged in attempting to murder others, (laughs) that they're arrested instead of shot. And then we have cases where the police are chasing after some person who they have stopped in a traffic stop, not somebody who turns on them and attempts to murder them, not a case where they pull over a vehicle and there are gangsters in there and they gun down the state trooper or the policeman, or where they maybe, and not that this has ever happened yet, but... It's bound to happen sometime. Pull over some terrorists, and the terrorists slaughter them. No, instead, they are pursuing someone for petty theft or some such thing as that, and they end up shooting them because they flee. Uh, Just incredible inequity and unevenness of the way things are done. And this was just breathtaking, this particular incident. I understand that if a citizen who is armed, who is carrying concealed, or perchance open carrying firearm, who happens to be at a shopping mall 
or a department store, grocery store, or a strip mall, not to be confused with strip clubs, but a strip mall or their church or whatever the case might be, but where they happen to attempt to prevent people from being murdered, from being slaughtered, from being kidnapped, raped, and murdered. And they are, there is the fog of war, and police arrive, and police are aware there is a, you know, an armed shooter situation or mass shooting. I realize that citizens, whether they happen to be myself or someone else, may in fact be taking their lives in their own hands by attempting to save others. And that's unfortunate, but that's the price of the responsibility to act, to do something rather than standing by and allowing the evil to take place. As this one young man did at this college in Oregon some time back, it was a community college in Oregon, and I believe that one of the Americans who was on that train in France and took down that terrorist, I believe that one of those American young men either had been a student at this college or was a graduate of it, that that came out. But anyway, there was this mass shooting attack, mass murder attack at this college, which again, I believe was a community college in the heart of Oregon. And one fellow after the attack stated that he was carrying concealed, but he didn't dare take a chance on intervening because he was afraid then the police would mistake him for a shooter. So he allowed his fellow students to be slaughtered instead of taking action, even though he was carrying concealed, he had his firearm on him. Outstanding, really outstanding. And of course, no charges were pressed against that fellow, but should have been. <laughs> Because his non-action, his non-intervention had the effect of making him, you could say, an unwilling but accessory to the crime. It's a little bit like, permit me to digress terribly now with a terrible analogy but it's like the situation with baseball, which I do not watch unless I happen to be in a household where people are watching baseball. And then, okay, then I'll go ahead and watch. And you see these incidents where someone, some player, whether they are in the infield or the outfield, they are trying to make an outstanding play. And the ball trickles off of their glove or ricochets off of their glove. And they are given an error. It doesn't always happen by any means, but but where errors are assessed where they should not be assessed. And meanwhile, then you have these other players who they don't make an attempt for the ball. They don't touch the ball 
and they are not assessed in error. <laughs> I just terrible inequity. I've always hated unfairness and injustice, even such trivial matters as that, as compared to grave matters. But here you have a case of a man in his home, 73 years of age, dressed with a gun in his hand, and the fellow he has shot, nude, in the act of attempting to rape his 11-year-old grandson, and the policeman jumps to the conclusion that Richard Black is the bad guy and needs to be shot, needs to be shot down, shot in the back, shot down, because after all, he's got a gun. Is he firing it? No. Is he aiming it at the police? No. But he has a gun and he's in the house. In the house. In the residence. Not out on the street. Incredible. Anyway, nothing, I guarantee you, nothing will be done to this police officer. And chances are extremely high that this is the only shooting that this police officer will ever do while they are a police officer. That is, never shoot a murderer, never shoot a destroyer, never shoot a rapist, never shoot a terrorist, never do anything like that. But here he has succeeded in killing, in slaying a decorated Vietnam War veteran who was defending his son. Imagine the horror, the nightmare of this, I'm going to use the term lunatic, even though I doubt if this guy was a lunatic, breaks into this house that there are a number of people in and goes after this 11-year-old grandson to rape him. (laughs) Extraordinary. But maybe... Maybe he was all doped up on drugs. Maybe he was just, you know, using some recreational marijuana there in good old Aurora, Colorado. I don't know. But (laughs) that was a demonstration of the worst of the police, the worst of police work. Meanwhile, later on, very recently, There was an incident in New York City in White Plains. So not strictly speaking New York City, but White Plains, New York. Police officer Jesse Ferreira Cavallo, a beautiful young woman, if I don't say so myself, uh, who's 28. She saw a boy climb over a guardrail and jump from an overpass onto the concrete below. She was on her way to work. She was not an active-duty police officer. She was off-duty. She was on her way to work. And she saw this. And she grabbed everything she could in her vehicle in the way of first-aid materials, stuffed them in her pockets, ran over. She jumped She saw, but prior to jumping, 
She said the following, quote, I wasn't thinking too much. I just knew when I looked down and saw him, he looked dead. I couldn't see anything other than blood. I thought to myself, he needs help. I need to help him, end quote. She jumped down. There was another woman who came who was in military uniform. And if you listen to this program, you know that I am inalterably opposed to women being in military and law enforcement. But I digress. So anyway, together they were able to help him, to assist him. The boy was unresponsive. They put a neck brace on him, a splint on him, checked his airway. But Jesse Ferreira Cavallo, she was not injured, or at least not seriously injured, from this jump that she made, this leap that she made to get down to where this boy was and help him, save him, rescue him. And after some time, the boy opened his eyes. Last I saw here, he's in intensive care. Now, she said that she went to work, worked until 11 p.m., didn't realize, you know, what was going on, what the... <laughs> uh, what was being made of this in the public eye. But then, then it hit her. She said, I didn't realize how high it was. It seemed doable. It didn't seem that high. I thought I jumped over a brick wall or a cement barrier. It was so fast, it was more like tunnel vision. I saw the boy and I needed to get to him. I didn't see anything else. And then after all of this, then she heads to the hospital. Well, she has, in fact, done similarly outstanding things prior to this. She's received approximately six life-saving awards in her seven years as a police officer. While she was a Mount Vernon officer, she saved an elderly man after a heart attack. All of the previous life-saving instances had to do with health-related matters. The case of using a defibrillator on this man, this elderly man, as well as cardiopulmonary resuscitation. And the others had to do with health-related issues in this sense that she administered naloxone in heroin overdoses. That's right. She administered this naloxone to people who were using heroin and had overdosed. But in addition to that, she's also been recognized for undercover work with the FBI and a county task force. An outstanding, outstanding young police officer, the best and the brightest, and in her case, definitely the most beautiful. 
Yes, there are great differences in the police, like that case that I mentioned previously, also, in which this young woman that had been on this police force with North Miami Beach, Florida, for less than a year, viciously, premeditatedly attacked a young woman who was eight and two-thirds months pregnant and beat the blank out of her and was proud of it and boasted of it. And that young woman was taken to the hospital, the pregnant young woman was taken to the hospital and delivered a baby nine days early after seven minutes of labor. And last I heard, the baby was doing all right, as well the mother. No thanks to that outstanding young woman police officer in North Miami Beach who was fired thereafter. Now, every now and then, I make a mistake. It does happen. And, uh, for instance, I believe that in the last program, or the program before that, I referenced dear former CIA director Brennan. The mistake that I made, if I made one, was pertaining to his name. I never can keep straight whether his name's Joseph or John. They both seem so wrong. I mean, really, it should be Mohammed Brennan. You know, this CIA director who converted to Islam while he was in the Middle East and who served as CIA director as uh, the Muslim's man at the CIA, along with many others. (laughs) But I may have called Brennan Joseph, you know, like old man Joe Kennedy, the patriarch. Uh, And if, if I used the correct name, John, here, here, but I don't think I did. But anyway, I was looking through an article, referencing an article pertaining to dear Brennan, and it didn't mention his name until the last line or the last paragraph of this, of this story, of this press release. <laughs> it gave everybody else's full name. But for Brennan, it just said Brennan, 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 (laughs) and CIA director Brennan, and so forth. And it didn't mention his first name. And lo and behold, I, whatever I was looking at at the time that I referenced Brennan, I did not have his first name handy. (laughs) And I think I used some, a name that is not his. But again, from now on, if, If it's quite all right, I think I will simply refer to him as Muhammad Brennan, former CIA director Muhammad Brennan. Perchance, you recall, I'm sure you do, uh, the tweet, you know, our tweeter-in-chief, the president for this age with a tweet-tweet here and a tweet-tweet there, here a tweet, there a tweet, everywhere a tweet-tweet. Yes, old MacDonald, as in the Donald. Yes, he loves to tweet, but also his key administration people are so keen on Twitter and tweeting and what have you, and so many others. It's just, you know, it is... 
This is the age of moronicness. And uh, Twitter is the perfect, perfect communications vehicle for that. For sound bites. <laughs> you know, the sound bite president and his sound bites. It's the perfect thing. So, anyway, he tweeted to the Iranian president Rouhani, Hassan Rouhani. And Hassan would work for Brennan too. All right, so Hassan, Mohammed, but I think Mohammed's the one. But to Iranian President Rouhani, all caps, all caps now, which means you are shouting, okay? That's, uh, as far as netiquette, uh, it's understood that all caps is your shouting. So I'm not going to shout, I'm just going to read through it, but never, ever threaten the United States again or you will suffer consequences the likes of which few throughout history have ever suffered before. We are no longer a country that will stand for your demented words of violence and death. Be cautious! Exclamation mark. That was from the Donald, old MacDonald, President Trump, as he tweeted, just imagine, you know, you have an especially important, important, serious, grave communication to make with a head of state. How do you do it? Tweet. That's right. You use Twitter. You tweet it. Right? Well, yes, if you're going to be moronic, ridiculous, irresponsible, foolish, foolhardy, you tweet it. So that's what he did. And, of course, Rouhani, Hassan Rouhani, he wasn't phased by it. So Rouhani said the following, quote, America should know that peace with Iran is the mother of all peace and war with Iran is the mother of all wars. Yes, unquote. But one of Rouhani's top dogs, General Qasem Soleimani, who happens to head up the Quds force of Iran's paramilitary revolutionary guard. So they can perform any number of duties from active uh, warfare to eh, secret police assistance, you know, like the KGB. Well, General Qasem, Soleimani, he said to President Trump, uh, you know, not face-to-face, mind you, but he said the following. You will start the war, but we will end it. He called Trump a gambler. Well, you know what? I mean... Truer words were never spoken. Donald Trump, of course, used to, 
used to own, partially own, because he had all manner of business partners who actually put up the money for these transactions, but he was partial owner of various different casinos, numerous casinos in Atlantic City, New Jersey, and Las Vegas, Nevada, and so forth. But he got out of various ones because they were not doing so well, not faring so well. So the general called Trump a gambler. Indeed. Indeed. Well, the gambler-in-chief, the president, he has interesting taste in whom he chooses for his friends, doesn't he? Of course, there is Vladimir Vlad Putin, former head of the KGB, FSB, but now, of course, president, president for life, actually, factually. I mean, not officially. You know, he hasn't declared himself president for life yet, all right? (laughs) But he is the de facto president for life, and he has been since he became president in the former Soviet Union portion that remains the Russian Federation. Well, he is one of Trump's friends, but, you know, it depends on the day. It depends on what side of the bed the president gets up on as far as his thoughts concerning Vladimir Putin. But another extremely good friend of the Donald is Kim Jong-un, of course, or whom I refer to as Kim Young-un, the vicious, ruthless, murderous dictator of North Korea. And Playboy as well, Uh, but international Playboy. So, no, I'm not making a... uh, a comparison <laughs> between he and the President of the United States with regard to such picadellos as that. No, uh, but Kim Jong-un, his stature has been greatly magnified by none other than the President of the United States of America. You know, I <laughs> I can't imagine as leader of a nation, leader of a free nation, leader of a once great nation like the United States of America, I did deliberately, seriously say once great nation. But after all, I mean, the president's campaign for presidency was predicated on the need to restore greatness. So that implied that it was no longer great, once great. But what I am saying explicitly is that it is not great. It hasn't been great for a long time because when the government, of a nation is wicked, promotes wickedness, 
legalizes wickedness, rewards wickedness, rewards the wicked versus the good. At the expense of the good, the honorable, the noble, the gentle, the kind, the innocent, the defenseless, the helpless, then that nation is not good and cannot be great. And that is true for the United States of America and has been true for many, low these many decades. But the president's I'm going to say right-hand man. Now, he's got various different, you know, people. The president's men, right, and women. The inner circle. But it keeps changing. It's musical chairs. (laughs) Keeps changing the directors of intelligence and security and what have you. And uh, whomever. (laughs) whomever does not manage to retain the confidence and goodwill of the president, and they all serve at the president's pleasure. And this is true for all presidents, not just the current incumbent. But anyway, Secretary of State Mike, Mike Pompeo, current Secretary of State, he was at another sort of a summit at the Asian Forum. Now, Asian, in this case, is not spelled A-S-I-A-N. It's not referring only to (laughs) the Asia that we know of, but it is an acronym. A-S-E-A-N. So he was at this summit of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, otherwise known as Asian. This, what I refer to as summit, it's an annual conference. And it was in Jakarta, Indonesia. And the place was filthy with diplomats, international diplomats, foreign diplomats. And so Mike Pompeo led the United States delegation, our Secretary of State. And Ri Yong-ho led the delegation from mighty superpower North Korea. Yes. Foreign Minister Ri Yang-ho. And they had an exchange, a brief exchange, and a group photo, a photo op, which are always so important. But they did not have any follow-up meetings, any formal meetings. But as these men returned from this group photo op (laughs) and this brief exchange, as they returned to their seats, then Sung Kim, who is the United States ambassador 
to the Philippines, to our ally, our actual ally, Philippines, unlike most favored nation, North Korea, our actual ally, Philippines. And he approached the North Korean foreign minister and he handed him a white envelope. I know you're thinking, what is this? Is this a game show or something? It almost, it has that flavor to it. Nope. Now this white envelope, which bore the seal of the president, I believe, it contained a letter from President Trump. Now, wait a minute. Wait, I'm going to pause and let you get up off the floor onto your seats or stand up off the floor, whatever. Yes, the president wrote a letter. I know, I know it's shocking. It is shocking. He did not tweet in this case. He wrote a letter. I don't know, maybe he dictated a tweet and then a staff member copied the tweet and printed it and maybe that was the letter. Something like that. But uh, in any case, this letter was delivered to the North Korean foreign minister. And as soon as Pompeo had departed, uh, re went on the offensive. And he, among other things, he demanded confidence-building measures be made by the United States of America to North Korea. He demanded that the United States of America make concessions to North Korea. Well, (laughs) you know, this is something that the president has created. He has created this problem. Did he create the matter of bloody, horrible, satanic, communist, family, business, North Korea under the direction, the dictatorship of the Kim family, their regime? No, he did not. Was he responsible for all of the myriad evils they've done? No. (laughs) But he did create this monster. And it will continue to plague this nation. As I have suggested previously and as I assert at this point in time. Meanwhile, Pompeo. Mike Pompeo, Mike Pompeo delivered the following message. Quote, we expect the Russians and all countries to abide by the United Nations Security Council resolutions and enforce sanctions on North Korea. Any violation that detracts from the world's goal of finally, fully 
denuclearizing North Korea would be something that America would take very seriously, end quote. Now, this was delivered at a news conference, I believe, and but let's just look at that for a moment. What Mike said. I want to skip all the way down to the last sentence. There are only two sentences, but finally, fully denuclearizing North Korea. You know, to me, I, you know, I'm undoubtedly just not understanding correctly, but to me, when you say finally, that implies that something's been going on for a while, as in a long while. North Korea has not had nuclear power for a long time, has not had nuclear weapons for a long, protracted, prolonged period of time. But who am I? Who am I to suggest that there's anything wrong with this? This statement by Mike Pompeo, in which he tells Putin's Russia that they must enforce sanctions on North Korea. I'm guessing that this probably didn't align with Foreign Minister Ryong Ho's demands that that the United States make concessions. I'm thinking that probably is not what he had in mind. Not just a wild guess. But... (laughs) But here, why is it that Pompeo delivers that, this statement to Russia? Not in Russia, not at a press conference in Russia, but instead along these lines, having to do with this wonderful Asian meeting. I'm not saying it's wrong for him to do that there, but it just, to me, again, it just, you know, these indirect communications to me are not the way things should be done. But I digress. Let me just share with you something here from Mike Pompeo. And that is that he started the morning with a rosy tweet. Yes. (laughs) Here he is, right-hand man, one of the right-hand men, one of the right-hand people for Donald Trump. And he started the morning with a tweet in which he stated that he had productive discussions on North Korea with Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi. Productive discussions on North Korea. Well, fascinating. By all means, go ahead and discuss it all you want with communist China and with Russia. With these regimes, which in fact hold the puppet strings that control North Korea. For North Korea is not an independent rogue regime as I have stated over and over and over again, but which 
perhaps is something less than common knowledge, (laughs) is something less than believed to be the case. But it is the case. It is a satellite slave state. It owes its existence to the former Soviet Union and to communist China. But he had productive discussions on North Korea with Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi. Meanwhile, (laughs) the United States of America, the United States of America has zero control over communist China. Fair enough. But it has zero influence, too. Our president and his administration imagine that they have influence and bargaining power, which at the absolute bedrock, they do not have. How is that possible? I mean, after all, the United States of America, the greatest power in the world, the sole world superpower, supposedly, the greatest economic engine in the world. I mean, even with lowly California now registering as the fifth largest economy in the world, supposedly. Supposedly. Well, how is it that the United States would not have influence? I'm sure that nobody will agree with me that the United States does not have influence, but we don't. Communist China and the Russian Federation of Vladimir Putin do what they want to do. When they do something that is supposedly, at our bidding, supposedly a concession to the United States of America, to the administration of President Trump, to President Trump himself, a concession to him, no. They are doing what they want to do, what they deign to do, what they have planned and plotted to do. Does that mean that they couldn't use more money and more business from the United States of America? No, of course they could. But China... The Chinese communist regime takes what it wants. It has taken all of our most cutting-edge military secrets from the United States of America, stolen them, and used them. And the Russian Federation, which in its previous permutation as the Soviet Union had the largest spy force in the United States of America is strictly number two now, or number three, or whatever, with communist China far and away number one. But our president deludes himself to imagine that... He's able to actually 
sway and move communist China and the Russian Federation of Vladimir Putin. And to imagine that he can bring about peace with North Korea. And meanwhile, he blusters at Iran, blusters at Iran. Well, that general, oh, yes, you know, U.S., you can, Trump, you can start the war. We will finish it. No, but they can certainly cause grievous destruction to fall upon a great many in their sphere, not just in Iran, but throughout the Middle East, targeting Israel and, of course, American and allied troops in the Middle East and in Central Asia throughout there. But these, nonetheless, these are buddies of the president, really. You know, Xi Jinping and these others, Wang Yi and Vladimir Putin and Kim Jong-un. These are his kind of people, good people, honorable people, noble people, honest people, peace-loving people, God-fearing people, his kind of people. But meanwhile... The Koch brothers, now they, <laughs> oh, oh boy, uh, do they deserve the wrath of the president. It's so funny because then we've got, of course, these extreme leftist socialist leaders of various free nations whom the president has contempt for. But then you have these conservative Outstanding businessmen, vastly, vastly superior businessmen to Donald Trump. Whoops, did I really say that? I really said that. Donald Trump was a gambler, is a gambler, as is his son-in-law, Jared Kushner. And by employing other people's money and having a lot of loot to play with, They have succeeded in building up some degree of fortune here or there. Or by engaging in being a slumlord, (laughs) uh, in the case of the son-in-law. But the Koch brothers, outstanding businessmen. Now, did they inherit any wealth? Yes, they too did. But in point of fact, they have done exemplary work with it. Contrary to what you will hear from the extreme leftist political activists in this nation, not just the ones in Congress and the Senate, but the various community organizers and so forth, black ministers and what have you. But... Charles Koch, the Koch brothers, his brother David, and the Koch companies have done outstanding work. And Charles Koch is a man of conscience. Now, David Koch has made an enormous, the largest ever, charitable donation to the Smithsonian Institution which I'm going to label under 
what President Trump referred to as their bad ideas. <laughs> I don't know if I can find it. Uh, it was here somewhere. I had a note to myself. But anyway, he referred to the Cokes and their bad ideas. Yes. It said that uh, he, of course, tweeted, he called the Koch brothers a total joke in real Republican circles. Oh, really? Nope. I think that I am not going too far out on a limb here when I say that who's viewed as being a joke is not the Kochs, but is the tweeter-in-chief. He claimed also that he had never, ever, sought the support of the Kochs. Why? Because I don't need their money or bad ideas. Hmm. Well, bad ideas. I would say David Kochs giving the largest charitable contribution that has ever been given to the Smithsonian Institution, an institution which has such an exceedingly evil history that that certainly would fall within their bad ideas. And then something else that I think would fall within their bad ideas would be their initiatives with regard to trying to curb recidivism of felons by helping them, enabling them, empowering them, so forth. But the Koch brothers, they deserve the wrath of the president. Wow, Kim Jong-un, Kim Jong-un, Vladimir Putin, Xi Jinping, these are the ones who deserve the honor from our president and from the United States of America. Outstanding. I guess that's the way that the president restores greatness to America. Speaking of the president, perhaps you saw this story. Alejandra Juarez returned to Mexico rather than be deported. Alejandra Juarez, who's been in the United States of America 20 years, who is married to a Marine veteran, a naturalized citizen, who has two daughters, gave birth to two girls in this nation. She was ordered to be deported to Mexico under President Trump's zero-tolerance immigration policy. She said the following to the president in Spanish, Quote, he thinks he's punishing me, and maybe I deserve it for having come the way I did. You're not making me suffer more. You're making a veteran suffer, and you always say you love veterans, end quote. Frankly, I think that is pithier and more cogent than anything I have seen from the president. She married Marine veteran Sergeant Timo Juarez, a naturalized American citizen. He served two combat tours in Iraq. And again, she lived here 20 years. They were married. They had two children. 
And I'm just wondering, how is it that she doesn't become a citizen? How is it she doesn't receive citizenship when she is married? She's not, it's not one of these cases where a terrorist comes into the USA and they manage to beguile some exceedingly foolish, sinful, hard-left-leaning young woman into marrying them. This is a diametrically different scenario. And yet here, our president's zero-tolerance immigration policy is so wise and wonderful that it results in deportation of this woman. There's something monstrously wrong and fatally flawed in our inerrant president's immigration policy. I'm Brad Thomas, and this is After All is Said and Done. After all is said and done, then we will know, won't we? But perhaps we can know now if we choose to. Thank you. Thank you.